It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. One of the most common themes you'll find in mythology and folklore is that of the shapeshifter. Many cultures have legends about supernatural creatures with the ability to deceive, hunt, and kill humans. In Slavic mythology, they speak about a shape-shifting woodland spirit known as the Leshi, which is believed to protect the forest from interlopers. Scottish, Icelandic, and Irish mythology all have stories of the Selkie, a seductive sea creature that starts out in the shape of a seal, but can shed that skin to reveal a beautiful and alluring human form, which allows them to entice unwary men to drown in the sea. Other Celtic mythology speaks of an impish shape-shifting creature known as a puka, capable of transforming itself into all sorts of dark animals, such as a goat, horse, or dog. Then, of course, there's no more famous a shape-shifting monster anywhere around the world, than the lycanthrope, a.k.a. the werewolf, which can be traced back through European legends of the 1500s, and from there back even further to stories from the ancient Greeks. But throughout the American Southwest, there's a legend about one particular shape-shifting creature that many Native American tribes say is the most fearsome and terrifying of all. The Navajo have multiple words for the creature, most notably the Yi Naldlushi, which roughly translates to By means of it, it goes on all fours. In English, that same creature has been granted another, even more descriptive name, the Skinwalker. It wasn't just the Navajo either who feared the Skinwalker. Hopi, Utes, and several other tribes throughout the Southwest all have variations on the legend. But they all boil down to basically the same thing. An evil witch capable of transforming itself into an animal. The witch sometimes wears the skin of the animal in order to assume the creature's abilities, including speed, strength, the ability to leap great distances, and even flight. According to Navajo legend, skinwalkers also have a secondary ability where they can worm their way inside a victim's mind, creating an intense feeling of dread. They can also use that ability to make the unwitting victim harm themselves, or even commit suicide. Now, the Navajo didn't just sit idly by and let witches terrorize them, either. By ancient Navajo law, a known witch forfeits its status as a human, therefore making it perfectly okay to kill them. In 1878, the U.S. Army staged a massive march of Navajo tribe members off their native land, during which hundreds of Navajo starved to death or were outright murdered. At the end of the march, the remaining Navajo were confined to a tiny, inhospitable reservation and left there to fend for themselves. They were destitute and starving. The horrible conditions they now found themselves in left them with only one conclusion. That witches must be behind their troubles. During that year, more than 40 tribe members were identified as witches and killed in order to rid the remaining tribe of their misfortune. 
According to native legends, there were certain hotspots throughout the southwest where skinwalkers were known to dwell. One such place was in the Uintah Basin, which extends through northeastern Utah into northwestern Colorado. It was also there that the Ute tribe would wind up after being squeezed out of their territories into a much smaller reservation forced on them by the U.S. government. Some historians describe the Utes as a fierce and warlike people who, for a time during the 1800s, fought alongside the Navajo against common enemies. But that alliance didn't last. When the Utes first acquired horses from the Spanish, they also enthusiastically adopted another Spanish tradition, the slave trade. The Utes reportedly began abducting Navajo and other Indians and began selling them throughout the southwestern slave markets. They also further angered the Navajo when they decided to fight alongside Kit Carson in a military campaign against them. It's because of all this bad blood between the tribes that the Utes came to believe the Navajo put a curse on them for all their transgressions. As a result of this curse, it's said that a particular section of the Uintah Basin would become home to all manner of evil things. A place referred to as the Dark Canyon. Spirits were said to roam freely throughout the Dark Canyon. Strange lights could be seen in the sky. Giant footprints of unidentified creatures were found. People were known to walk into the canyon and just disappear without a trace. It was claimed by some Utes that in this section of the Uintah Basin, the membrane between our world and the spirit world was at its thinnest. And sometimes, terrifying creatures would emerge into ours and stalk the night. If all this sounds like a lot of superstitious folklore, that's understandable. But the thing is, just a few years ago, all those stories of monsters, spirits, and strange lights in the sky began being described again. Not in some ancient Native American lore passed down over generations, but by a rather typical family who bought a parcel of land not far from the Dark Canyon. A parcel of land which has gone on to be known by one of those terrifying creatures who is said to inhabit the region a place we know today as Skinwalker Ranch. I'm Nate Hale. Thinking that if aliens did invade, it would only be the third or fourth worth thing to happen in 2020. And this is The Conspirators. The 1970s proved to be something of a new renaissance for UFO sightings around the world. Reports of strange lights in the sky saw a massive uptick. Certain locations around the globe began getting a reputation as UFO hotspots. One such location was a large ranch in the Uintah Basin, southeast of Ballard, Utah. Although residents of the area would report seeing UFOs near the ranch throughout the 70s and 80s, it wouldn't be until 1996 when an article that ran in the Salt Lake City, Utah Desert News began describing in detail some of the strange goings-on at what would come to be known as Skinwalker Ranch. More news stories followed, eventually culminating in a book co-authored by biochemist Colm Kelleher and journalist George Knapp, titled The Hunt for the Skinwalker in which they describe an astonishing list of practically every paranormal phenomena imaginable that they say occurred on the ranch. Strange lights in the sky, cattle mutilations, cryptid sightings, poltergeist activity, and even what appeared to be interdimensional portals opening up. 
It all started back in the fall of 1994 when a couple named Terry and Gwen Sherman began looking to buy some land where they could raise their prize-winning cattle. They learned of a really sweet deal they could get on a 480-acre ranch in the Uintah Basin that seemed made for them. The family couldn't believe their good fortune. It was a beautiful tract of land with cottonwood and olive trees, a shelf of red rocks to one side, and a lush pasture bordered by a creek just perfect for grazing cattle. It was everything the ranching family could hope for. Right from the very beginning, though, there were a few red flags that indicated something was amiss. For starters, there was an odd stipulation written into the sales contract that the family was not to dig on the land without getting prior approval by the previous owners. There was no explanation given why they weren't allowed to dig, but the Shermans decided to just shrug it off. The deal they were getting was just too good to pass up, but when Terry, Gwen, and their two children first entered the small ranch house they would live in, they were more than a little weirded out when they realized that all the windows were barred, and every door throughout the house had several heavy-duty deadbolts, both on the inside and the outside. It was as if someone was trying to not only keep something out, but to also keep something in. Outside the farmhouse, they found several large metal chains attached to massive steel rings embedded securely in the wall, apparently to chain up some very large guard dogs. For a couple weeks, everything went on normally. Then one day, as they were unloading a truck, Terry, Gwen, and their two children all spotted what appeared to be a massive wolf loping across a field in their direction. And the closer it got, the bigger it appeared. This was clearly no ordinary wolf. It was massive, at least three times bigger than any wolf Terry had ever seen. It was gray and it smelled like wet dog. Terry was immediately concerned, not only for his family's safety, but also for the cows in the pen no more than 70 feet away. At first, the wolf seemed to offer no threat. It came right up to them, showing no fear or any signs of aggression, and even allowed the family to pet it. The kids started talking about wanting to keep it. Then, without warning, the wolf suddenly bounded over to the corral, and before they could do anything about it, it latched its massive jaws on a calf's face after it poked its head through the bars. The calf cried out in pain and tried to lurching back, but the wolf held tight. Terry tried kicking at the wolf to get it to let loose, but it refused. He told his son to give him his pistol, and Terry fired three shots directly into the wolf's abdomen. The first couple shots seemed to have no effect on the wolf, but after the third slug hit, the creature reluctantly released the calf. Terry was stunned. Even though he was certain he had hit the animal and knew full well by all rights it should be dead, it just stood there, calmly looking at him with those eerie blue eyes. Terry didn't know what to do, so he shot it again, this time directly in the heart. And yet, once again, the bullet seemed to have no effect on the creature. Then the wolf just turned and loped away. Terry grabbed his out 6 and took aim at the creature. He fired multiple times at the wolf, with bullets large enough to rip chunks of flesh off the creature's hide. But even still, the wolf barely appeared to react to each shot. It just kept casually trotting away through the field. Terry grabbed his rifle and pistol and he and his son ran after it. The wolf began picking up speed. Terry and his son managed to keep the creature in their sight for several minutes. When it was gone from their field of vision, they were still able to follow the wolf's tracks it left behind. 
They followed the tracks all the way to the nearby river where the earth was muddy and the wolf's paw prints were clearly visible. But then, about 25 yards from the river, the prints abruptly stopped. There was no sign where the wolf could have gone. It was as if the creature had just vanished into thin air. This was just the first of many strange things the Sherman family saw on the ranch. It wouldn't even be their last encounter with an enormous wolf either. A few weeks after their first encounter, Gwen Sherman was driving home from her new job with a local mortgage company. She pulled her gray Chevette up to the edge of her property and got out to open and close the gates behind her. As she got back in her car, that's when she caught a glimpse of something in her peripheral vision. An enormous gray wolf had crept silently up in her car without her noticing it at first. The wolf came closer, and she felt a knot of fear welling up inside her as she realized this animal was taller than the car. She stared into the wolf's pale blue eyes for a moment, but that's when she noticed the other dog. This one was jet black, and it stood a distance away from the car. It was large, but not quite as big as the enormous wolf that towered over her vehicle. She later said that, although it looked like a dog, it was unlike any breed she had seen before. The canine's head seemed too big for its body, and overall something about it just looked wrong to her. That was all it took. The fear broke inside her and Gwen jammed her foot in the gas pedal and sped away for home. The next day she went to the local tribal office to complain that no one had warned her family about wolves roaming the area around her property before purchasing it. She was met with a bunch of blank stares and confusion. One of the tribal officers told Gwen she must be mistaken. There hadn't been a wolf in this part of Utah for at least 70 years. Later on, Gwen was given some pictures of different types of animals to see if she could identify the species she had seen. Gwen identified the creature she saw as a dire wolf, which, as it turns out, isn't just something straight out of Game of Thrones, but an actual species of giant wolf that went extinct 10,000 years ago. After that, the family continued spotting large animals in the distance now and then. But the wolves proved to be the least of their worries. Plenty of other strange things began happening, both inside and outside their home. One night while Gwen was walking along a ridge, she felt something large buzz past her. She looked around but couldn't see anything, but she was certain she had felt it. Then it happened again, and once again she saw nothing. But still, she couldn't shake the sense that something had just flown right past her. Something big. Then over the next few weeks, common objects began disappearing and reappearing in strange places throughout the house. When Gwen was in the kitchen, she'd do things like lay a spoon down on the counter and leave the room for a minute. But as soon as she came back, the spoon would be gone, only to reappear later in a strange place. Now, of course, Gwen just assumed at first it was one of her kids playing pranks on her. But then one day, Terry stormed into the house, demanding to know which one of them had hidden his post digger. None of them knew what he was talking about. Gwen and both kids had been inside the house the entire time. Terry said he had left the 70-pound post digger on the ground and went back to his truck to get a wrench. But when he returned, the digger was gone. All of them went outside and spent the next half hour looking around to see where the digger could have gone, but none of them found it. Two days later, Terry rushed back inside demanding to know who had stolen his pliers he had just left out. Once again, no one fessed up. It wouldn't be until a few days later after that Terry finally found the post digger in a most unexpected place. 
It was up in a tree high up off the ground, which begged the questions how anyone could have dragged the 70-pound piece of equipment up there. Or why, for that matter. That was when Terry recalled the warning he'd been given when he bought the land not to dig on the property. But Terry realized he had pretty much ignored that warning and been digging all over the land. Something else curious began to happen whenever the Shermans attempted to dig on their property. The family swore that whenever they did anything destructive to land like dynamiting a tree stump or digging up large rocks, they swore they could feel strange vibrations coming up out of the ground, and they could hear what sounded like mechanical noises emanating from beneath their feet. Then one night, Terry and Gwen were out in a walk when they both heard another strange metallic machine noise. But this noise wasn't coming from below ground. That was when they saw a bright light resting on the ground about a hundred yards ahead of them. They thought at first it must be the headlight of a vehicle, but when they got closer to the light, it lifted up off the ground and backed away from them about another 50 yards. They kept walking toward it, but the object kept backing away. Then they heard the mechanical noise start up again, only this time it was coming from right behind them. They whirled around and saw nothing, but when they turned back around, the strange light had vanished. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. By the time Christmas was getting closer, Terry had become obsessed with getting to the bottom of what was happening on his ranch. He began spending many hours outside wandering his property at night looking for any signs of something out of the ordinary. One time he was out on one of his nightly patrols even though it was quite late and the temperature was getting close to 30 below. He was getting ready to call it quits for the night when he spotted something that could only be described as a UFO. It was floating about 30 feet above the snow-covered ground. Terry described it as being about the size and shape of a stealth bomber. It was completely silent. When it finally began to move, it began to cast multicolored lights on the ground. Terry crouched down and watched transfixed as the craft moved silently along the ridge before it suddenly shot off and disappeared. Then a few weeks later, Gwen said she saw the same thing. A dark triangular craft floating silently above the snow, giving off patterns of multicolored lights. But the triangular UFO wasn't the only strange thing the Shermans began seeing in the sky. The entire family began seeing strange glowing orange lights, mostly at night, but occasionally during the day as well. Sometimes the orbs appeared perfectly round. Other times they were oblong in shape. It was difficult to gauge distance, but most times Terry estimated they were floating about a mile away from their vantage point. One time Terry said he tried to zoom in on one of these strange lights using the scope on his night vision rifle, and what he saw completely baffled him. Terry swore he could look right through that orb to what looked like blue sky on the other side. He described it as if the orb was some sort of window to another place where it was still daylight. Now, up to this point, all the strange occurrences had been disturbing to be sure, but most of what they had experienced didn't seem outright harmful in any way. That is until one day during that first winter on the ranch when a terrible snowstorm hit. The following day, Terry went out to check on his cattle only to realize one of his calves was missing. 
It wasn't unusual for one of the cows to wander off, but Terry was worried the calf might freeze to death, so he followed the cow's tracks to lead it back to the herd. Terry noticed that the tracks appeared fresh throughout the snow. And also that based on the spacing of the footprints, it almost looked as if the cow was running from something. Terry couldn't think of any sort of predator that would attack during a snowstorm. But then Terry followed the tracks to the middle of a clearing right to a point where the tracks just stopped. Terry couldn't figure it out. Where had the cow gone? Terry never knew. It had just vanished. By the time spring rolled around, four more of Terry's cows vanished as well. Terry had never lost this many cows in such a short time period, and he had no idea where they were all going. Within just under two years, Terry Sherman would lose 20% of his cattle on Skinwalker Ranch. One day in April, Terry's son was walking along a muddy ridge when he spotted one of the cows down in the ditch struggling to get out. Terry's son left for what he claimed was no more than 20 minutes as he planned on returning and helping the cow out of the ditch. But when the young man came back, he was shocked to realize the cow was now dead. But not just dead. Pieces of the cow were completely missing. Someone, or something, had cleanly cut out a huge section of the cow's abdomen and removed a number of the cow's intestines. When Terry came over to see for himself, he was stunned to realize there was absolutely no blood anywhere to be found. Not on the cow itself, nor on the muddy ground. This made zero sense. If a predator had ripped open the cow's stomach to get at the soft tissues within, there should have been gallons of blood all over the place. But there wasn't a single drop. Three months later, Terry discovered another cow that had been killed in practically the same manner. Over time, more and more of his cows kept turning up eviscerated the same way. And yet, despite repeatedly trying to catch whoever or whatever was doing it in the act, Terry was never able to identify the predator. Then one night, both Terry and Gwen were out watching the cattle, waiting for something to happen. That was when they spotted another glowing orb that appeared just over the tree line. Unlike the other orbs they'd seen on other occasions, this one was blue, not orange. It appeared a lot smaller than some of the others. This one was roughly the size of a baseball, and Terry and Gwen watched as the orb darted first above the cattle, then zoomed near enough to them that they were able to get a closer look at it. They said it looked like a ball of glass, and inside it appeared to have some sort of glowing blue liquid inside that made a faint crackling noise that made them think it had an electrical charge running through it. Gwen grabbed her flashlight and tried to shine the beam on it, but the orb shot off into darkness and vanished. A few nights later, the same thing happened again, only this time Terry decided to let his three dogs off their chain and chase after it. When the dogs gave chase, the orb kept darting low toward them. As soon as the dogs got close to the orb, the ball of light shot up into the sky away from them. It almost looked like it was playing with them. Then the orb shot off into a thicket and the dogs chased after it. Moments later, Terry heard his dogs make a series of blood-curdling yelps from inside the trees. And then silence. As much as Terry wanted to run after them and see what had happened, he also realized that could be suicide. He waited until morning to go looking for the dogs. When he entered the thicket, he was horrified to find three large circles of brown grass, each of which was topped with a pile of charred flesh. It was all that remained of Terry's dogs. This was the final straw. Whatever was on the ranch had finally demonstrated that it could be legitimately dangerous to Terry and his family. Terry decided to start looking for outside help. 
reached out to a retired school teacher named Joseph Jr. Hicks, who had been researching the strange goings-on throughout the Uintah Basin for years. Hicks had collected stories dated back several decades of more than 400 UFO sightings all across the basin. Everything from glowing orbs to actual unidentified metallic aircraft. Hicks informed Terry that UFO sightings and cattle mutilations were commonly reported throughout the area surrounding the ranch. But knowing all this didn't really help Terry and Gwen's predicament. It merely confirmed what they already knew. That these things were really happening, and that they were powerless to stop it. This left them no choice. In June of 1996, the Shermans agreed to sell the ranch to a billionaire named Robert Bigelow, who had made his fortune in the hotel business as the owner of Budget Suites of America. But the hotel business wasn't Bigelow's real passion. Ever since he was a child, Bigelow had been obsessed with space, and in particular with UFOs. You may have heard Bigelow's name in connection to a series of eye-opening articles that appeared in the New York Times over the last couple years in which the U.S. government admitted to funding a project into the study of UFOs known as the Advanced Aviation Threat Identification Program, or ATIP. It was Bigelow who lobbied Congress to create the program, and according to published reports, much of the collected information on unidentified aerial phenomenon, as they were calling him, was funneled through the billionaire's company, Bigelow Aerospace. When Bigelow read about all the strange phenomena occurring on what would come to be known as Skinwalker Ranch, he immediately bought the land and sent out his privately funded research center, the National Institute for Discovery Sciences, a.k.a. NIDS. The NIDS team was led by biophysicist Colm Kelleher. Terry Sherman stayed on as a paid caretaker for the ranch while the scientists did their research. Over the next year, the scientists claimed to encounter many of the same sorts of strange phenomena that Terry had described. The strange lights in the sky, more cattle mutilations, and even bizarre creatures they couldn't identify. Then on April 2nd, 1997, something even more unexplainable happened. That afternoon, Terry went out to the corral to check on four of his prize-winning bulls, only to realize they weren't in the pen. Losing so many of his cows was bad enough, but Terry had won awards for his cattle, and the bulls were practically irreplaceable. Terry was dumbstruck. The corral appeared to be completely undisturbed. There were no breaks in the fence and no ways the bulls should have been able to get out. There were also no footprints and no sign anywhere where the bulls might have gone. Eventually, as a last resort, Terry decided to check a small trailer that stood at the end of the corral. This was a long shot because the only door to the trailer was securely locked and Terry hadn't opened it in years. Obviously, the bulls couldn't be inside and yet when Terry peeked inside one of the trailer's windows, there they were. The four bulls were packed in so tightly they could barely move, but that didn't seem to be a problem because they weren't really moving anyway. Terry opened up the trailer, and for a while he had a difficult time getting the bulls to come back out. He said it was like they were in some sort of trance. After a while, the bulls began to snap out of it, and Terry was able to coax them out of the trailer, but he still had no explanation how they could have gotten in there in the first place. Terry called over some of the members of the NIDS team to show them what was going on. The scientists didn't have any explanation either how the bulls could have gotten inside the trailer. But one thing they did discover was that when they used some of their instruments on the corral itself, some of the metal bars that surrounded the pen proved to be highly magnetic. Within 48 hours, that magnetization was completely gone, but the scientists remained at a loss to explain how the bars could have come to be in that state in the first place. 
Carrie swore he'd only been away from the Crown no more than 45 minutes, which meant that whatever happened to the bowls, the trailer, and the Crown must have occurred during that short window of time. After that, over time, the paranormal occurrences on the ranch reportedly began to dwindle. Robert Bigelow continued to own the ranch until 2016. That was when he sold Skinwalker Ranch for $4.5 million to a mysterious shell corporation known as Adamantium Holdings. Fans of Marvel Comics will note that Adamantium is the fictional metal that my favorite X-Man Wolverine skeleton is sheathed in. In 2017, the name Skinwalker Ranch was filed for a trademark. Then in March 2020, Brandon Fugel, a 46-year-old real estate tycoon, announced publicly that he was the new owner of the ranch. That same year, the History Channel debuted a show called The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch that followed Fugel's research team as they continued to investigate the strange goings-on. So what is happening on Skinwalker Ranch? Your guess is as good as mine. In 1996, noted skeptic James Randi awarded Robert Bigelow a Pegasus Award for buying into what he said was a load of nonsense. Skinwalker Ranch is one of those places that's difficult to come up with one concrete explanation to explain everything and has left many of the scientists who lived and worked there baffled. If even some of what the Shermans and the NIDS scientists describe really happened, then it's beyond anything known to modern science. Skeptics like James Randi cry foul and say the ranch and all its paranormal phenomena are clearly just silly folklore. Some of the NIDS scientists tried coming up with some rational explanation of their own, like perhaps there was some native plant growing on the land that had hallucinogenic properties. But even that's a pretty weak explanation when you think about it. That leaves us having to consider some pretty out-there theories. One often-mentioned theory sounds like pure science fiction, but then again, so does practically everything else that's been described on Skinwalker Ranch. Throughout history, there have been ancient legends about places on Earth sometimes referred to as Anaxis Mundi. These are sacred locations where the locals believe heaven and Earth are connected. The ancient Chinese, the Tibetan Hindus, the Norse Vikings... And many Native American tribes all have legends about places where the fabric between our earthly realm and another plane of existence are at their thinnest. In scientific terms, we might think of such things as wormholes. According to theoretical physics, a wormhole should be able to connect two distant points in space instantly. As crazy as it sounds, some researchers have put forth the idea that a wormhole may be the most plausible explanation for so much of the strange phenomena on Skinwalker Ranch. A wormhole could explain the objects disappearing and reappearing. The cattle suddenly appearing inside the tiny locked trailer. And even Terry Sherman's claim that he was able to look through one of the glowing orbs at night to somewhere that still had blue skies. I know, it all sounds crazy. The most rational explanation remains that none of it is real. According to the laws of physics, wormholes don't operate exactly like that. Nor does there appear to be any good scientific reason such things should occur in a dusty ranch in Utah. In recent years, Brandon Fugel's team claims to have discovered the presence of strange magnetic anomalies and radio waves that are beaming down from the sky onto the ranch. Almost like the land is one big satellite dish. But they still don't have any explanation where these mysterious radio waves might be coming from. And for now, they say their investigation is still ongoing. Like I've said over and over again, any rational thinking person would obviously say none of this is real. But to do so, you have to completely disregard all the eyewitness accounts described by the Sherman family, Robert Bigelow, Brandon Fugel, Colm Kelleher and his scientists, not to mention all the neighbors living around the area who have also have claimed to have seen strange lights in the sky. 
On top of all that, there are plenty of Native American Ute and Navajo legends dating back centuries that appear to corroborate what's been happening on Skinwalker Ranch. When you look at it that way, there just doesn't seem to be any way all these people could be in on some elaborate hoax. It makes no practical sense. Not only would all these people have to keep their story straight, but then you have to stop and ask yourself, what's in it for them? So if we were to consider, even for a moment, that everything the witnesses claim happened on Skinwalker Ranch are real, then we also have to wonder the next logical question. Why? If there is some mystical doorway to another time or place on the ranch, then what's it doing there? And what's on the other side? Two other stories from the book The Hunt for the Skinwalker open up some terrifying possibilities. In the summer of 1997, two members of the NIDS team were outside on a low bluff doing some nighttime reconnaissance of the area when they spotted a bright orange circle of light about 150 feet below them. One of the researchers grabbed a set of binoculars and tried zooming in on the circle. That's when he realized what he was looking at appeared less like an orb and more like some sort of tunnel opening up in the ground. He watched the orange circle grow larger. Then to his complete horror, some sort of dark, humanoid creature began to crawl out of it. As soon as the creature climbed out of the tunnel and stood up on two legs, it immediately dashed off and vanished into the night. When the scientists finally worked up the courage to go down the hill and look for the tunnel, they were unable to find any sign of it, nor the creature they had seen. On another night, Colm Kelleher and another researcher were out doing their own investigation when they spotted a bright blue orb about the size of a basketball hovering about 75 feet away. They tried shining powerful handheld spotlights on the object, but as soon as they did, the orb abruptly vanished. Kelleher went to prep the infrared camera to see if he could spot anything else, while the other researcher picked up a set of night vision goggles and began to scan the tree line. That's when he gave out a startled cry. He told Kelleher that something was moving along the tree line. Something enormous. Whatever it was appeared so big that it blotted out the trees as it moved in front of them. The researcher kept muttering how the thing was still moving giving a terrified play-by-play as it passed by. Then, suddenly, the man jerked still and cried out that whatever it was had gotten inside his mind and was seizing control. He told Kelleher that it had a message for the two of them. It said, We are watching you. The Experience is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Shanna, Steve, Madeline, and Lawrence for signing up and helping support the show. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our exclusive bonus mini-episode. We also have a new merchandise store open where you can get all sorts of awesome mugs, t-shirts, phone cases, and much, much more. I'll put links in the show notes for both Patreon and our merch store if you're interested. If you're not on Patreon and still want to help us out, you can also subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. That way we rise up in Apple's magical rankings and spread the good word about the show to more listeners like you. If you're not on Apple, not to worry. We're also available on most of your other favorite podcast apps. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com, where you can hear our entire back catalog of shows. Check us out on social media as well. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can even send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com and let us know how we're doing. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.